You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to ADHD Across the Lifespan, produced in cooperation with APSART, the American Professional Society of ADHD and Related Disorders, and sponsored by Concerta, a product of McNeil Pediatrics, division of Ortho McNeil Janssen Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated. Your host is Dr. Leonard Adler, Director of the Adult ADHD Program and Professor of Psychiatry and Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the NYU School of Medicine. How can learning and instruction and academic support be tailored to better serve students with ADHD? Joining us to discuss educational accommodations for the ADHD student is Dr. Matthew Tomini, Director of Disability Support Services at Seton Hall University in South Orange, New Jersey. Welcome, Dr. Tomini. Very happy to be with you, Len. So we're going to go over some things in an area that are actually are not all that often thought about, actually in two different ways. One is the issue of educational accommodations and how that interfaces with ADHD in terms of disease entity. But on top of that, spend a little bit of time talking about the young adult. The college student is one area that we've neglected to an extent in terms of understanding the special issues for the college student with ADHD. I've seen quite an increase, Len, in the number of students that are receiving accommodations in college for primary diagnosis of ADHD, and I think colleges and universities are starting to get a pretty good handle on it and providing a good balance between reasonable accommodations and other types of learning instruction and services for the student. In fact, the concept of reasonableness is one that needs to be hit home. From the bird's eye view of this, whenever I discuss with a student who's going to be coming in for accommodation, certainly I see a lot of NYU students. And we talk about what is reasonable. If you're going to be asking for reasonable things, the chance of success will be much greater. Oh, absolutely. Colleges and universities are responsible for providing students with equal access if they have a disability. Many students with ADHD do qualify as having a disability, but many do not. There's a broad spectrum in the severity of symptoms associated with the disorder and its impact on learning. So, in fact, one of the things you and I have spent a lot of time talking about, certainly at conferences, is the diagnosis of ADHD in and of itself is not sufficient to qualify the student for educational accommodations. The accommodations are actually established under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Yes, that's correct. And what we really need to use is both qualitative and quantitative data in determining what would be a reasonable and appropriate accommodation with the student. What we try to do is level the playing field without fundamentally altering what we're trying to do in the classroom or in a degree program. So let's start with this one question, which is what ADHD symptoms are there and how they should be accommodated differently and what's reasonable and appropriate in terms of academic accommodations for ADHD, be that for the inattentive or hyperactive impulsive subsets. Sure. As we try to develop accommodations plans for students in, the, in post-secondary, we try to individualize those to meet the needs of the student. A lot of times, if a student presents with inattentive symptoms, then a reduced distraction test environment may be the most appropriate accommodation. Or they may need extended time to facilitate breaks or the ability to go back over work so that they can catch mistakes that they may have read past or incorrectly answered in some complicated work. Also, making sure that they're working in an environment either free of distractions or reduced in distractions. There's many students with ADHD can have either internal distractions that cause them some problems or they have to have complete silence around them so that they're not bothered externally by distractions. So it's important to tailor the accommodations being requested or given 
for not only symptoms, but the impairment the individual is having. It's also important when individuals are going to be requesting accommodations for the accommodations that are requested to match the clinical symptoms that are noted to be impairing. Furthermore, the neuropsychological profile needs to also be considered, and that comes from the neuropsychological testing. Really, the preferred and only way that we can quantify the need for accommodations in an academic setting is through a psychoeducational evaluation or a neuropsychological evaluation that measures everything from processing speed to aptitude, memory, executive functioning, ability to acquire information, achievement in reading, writing, and math, and a variety of other types of areas so that we can make sure that we can come up with accommodations that make sense so that we can actually quantify the need for extended time due to processing speed or fluency issues as opposed to a student that maybe have inattentive symptoms but processes information very quickly. So getting appropriate psychometric assessment with either psychoeducational or neuropsychological testing is critical. And also, that note from the treating physician documenting that the diagnosis as a gateway to starting the process also is part of this. Yes, and any type of history we can establish, first-hand history is most helpful, where the practitioner can get more than just self-report from the students, maybe looking at academic records or other types of accommodations that they've used in the past, accommodation plans or earlier uh, psychoeducational evaluations that were done in primary or secondary education. So going back and looking at childhood is critical here, and getting whatever supporting documentation you have can be helpful. I've actually had students who've gone back and gotten information that wasn't available in an IEP because they weren't diagnosed then. But they actually went back and got their old report cards, saw some behavioral comments. That's pretty common. But I've also had several who went back and talked to their teachers and really went over what their symptoms were like and got a report from the teacher. Even if it's retrospective, whatever documentation you can get can be helpful. It's never an exacting science. As much as we can get that can objectively give us some information about how the student has performed in the past and the limitations and the severity of those limitations in the past are helpful in determining what accommodations are appropriate in a college setting. But we also need to make sure that our documentation is current and it can tell us the severity of the symptoms at this time and place and how they affect the student in this academic setting. So... In fact, often for college-age students, they'll come in with psychoeducational evaluations from childhood, and the evaluation for college really needs to be done with adult-based norms. Absolutely. Adult-based norms, usually by the time a student turns 16, they can switch over to adult-based norms, especially in the intelligence testing, where we get a lot of our information from with the processing speed and the indices and, and the memory indices. Then also, the recency of the documentation, three years, tends to be the acceptable standard for high-stakes testing companies such as ETS, the ACTs, LSATs, MCATs, and the like. That's important. The testing needs to be recent. But I think some of the recent interpretations of the ADA may lead to the three-year rule being somewhat modified. Oh, absolutely. And ETS has already moved towards just having updated documentation instead of a comprehensive new psychoeducational evaluation done. So another thing I think that can't be emphasized enough is whoever is going to be doing the testing needs to look and see what the organization wants, be it the university, the higher testing organization, educational testing service for college, or the LSATs or the GMATs. This information is usually available online. 
And the number of times I've seen testing done without the individual looking to see what's necessary and creating an unnecessary hurdle is hard to describe. It's really an important first place to start. It really is. I would suggest that any student that is, is looking to receive accommodations on an entrance of qualifying test or at a university that they go to their websites and download the documentation criteria and take that with them to their diagnostician so that they can follow that procedure. Everybody's procedure is a little bit different, so it's important that it saves time and effort and expense that the student gets this in as quickly and efficiently as possible. Right. No need to make the process more cumbersome than it needs to be. We're already talking about somebody who's gone through their assessments, and now we're talking about another step they're taking to try to get their accommodations that they may need. Sure, we're just clarifying the need for accommodation at this point. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ADHD Across the Lifespan on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Leonard Adler. And joining us to discuss educational accommodations for the ADHD student is Dr. Matthew Tomini, Director of Disability Support Services at Seton Hall University in South Orange, New Jersey. What sorts of learning instruction or academic support are helpful? We see a lot of students as they transition to a different level of academic setting demands. Just number one is finding out what the university wants from them in the different classes and then being able to give that to them. Everything changes when when a student goes off to college, especially things such as organization and time management, where in a high school setting, they have parents to help, they have teachers to help, they have the curriculum is designed so that you're reinforced on very rapid succession. And then moving to a college setting is much more up to the student. And if they don't have those time management organizational skills, then they need it help developing those skills either with low-tech, high-tech ways and to organize their semester so that they don't fall behind in their different coursework. I think it can't be highlighted enough that when a young adult transitions to college, there's often a need for them to do several different things. One is to handle these things organizationally, much more for themselves. And when they're having difficulty, go to the Disability Service Center, where some support may be available once they qualify for accommodations and then they can organize and have a plan put in place. And secondly, to realize that the support that was probably tacitly there and not always explicitly stated or known from their parents has now been removed. Yes, and we see so many students that come into college and don't seek out the supports. And the supports may be not as easy to find in some colleges as they are in other colleges, but they are there. Putting together your own plan of working with a disability service office to put your accommodations in place, working with the writing center to make sure that you're writing at that college level and understanding what research you need to do to complete your papers and courses, working with learning instructors at the academic support different offices. And then there's also the tutoring centers, which provide a a lot of support. So there's multiple different places. Some colleges make it very simple for students to have one-stop shopping. But in most universities, you have to move around a little bit and utilize your resources so that you can find where you can get the help needed. And advocate for yourself, which is something not all students have done. Absolutely. We've seen a large number of students that have never had to do this in the past. The parents and teachers have always advocated under really a different set of laws in K-12 through than we have in college, where the parent is taken out of the equation for the most part. Then the student needs to be able to understand how their disability affects them academically, being able to communicate that to someone else and receive the help that they need. One thing I've seen in students 
is that there is a concern in the high school setting about getting some accommodations that carry over into the young adult setting in college. And my experience is often students, because everybody kind of has their own thing that they're doing, that there's no basis for this. My experience is that other students consider it not to be that big an issue if some student might be getting an accommodation in the college setting as compared to the high school setting where it's a more prominent concern. Yes, exactly. It's really hard to tell the etiology of why that's happening. Maybe just is maturity or other students understanding that there's a greater number of students and they know the students that are receiving accommodations. And most universities have done a very good job of normalizing the process. That's another good point. It's a lot easier because you have a lot of flexibility in your day to take accommodations, take extra time. You can start your test earlier. You have more gaps in your day. You have more control over your day than you do, let's say, in high school where things are much more structured and getting that time accommodation can be difficult. Yes, where you don't have gaps in your classes so that you have to come in early or stay late or get a different exam altogether. I would like to thank my guest from Seton Hall University in South Orange, New Jersey, Dr. Matthew Tomini. Dr. Tomini, thank you very much for being our guest this week on ADHD Across the Lifespan. Thank you, Dr. Adler. You've been listening to ADHD Across the Lifespan on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ADHD Across the Lifespan is produced in cooperation with APSART, the American Professional Society of ADHD and Related Disorders, and sponsored by Concerta, a product of McNeil Pediatrics, division of Ortho McNeil Janssen Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com now featuring on-demand podcasts. It's 9 a.m., and John's ADHD is already causing problems at home. Work doesn't go much better. Once Daily Concerta, methylphenidate hydrochloride is a step in the right direction for patients like John who need ADHD symptom improvement with a proven tolerability profile. Concerta offers smooth delivery of medication throughout the day, and its compromise-resistant formulation may help discourage abuse. Abuse of methylphenidate may lead to dependence. Concerta is a Schedule II controlled substance. Concerta is already the number one ADHD medication prescribed for children and adolescents. Discover the benefits it can bring to adult patients with ADHD. Visit www.concerta360.com to find out more today and get online tools for diagnosing ADHD in adults. Concerta is indicated for the treatment of Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, ADHD. Important Safety Information Concerta should not be taken by patients with allergies to methylphenidate or other ingredients in Concerta, significant anxiety, tension, or agitation, glaucoma, Tourette's syndrome, tics, or family history of Tourette's syndrome, current or recent use of monomain oxidase inhibitors, MAOIs, Children under six years of age should not take Concerta. Abuse of methylphenidate may lead to dependence. Concerta should not be used in patients with known structural cardiac abnormalities, cardiomyopathy, serious heart rhythm abnormalities, coronary artery disease, other serious cardiac problems, or patients with pre-existing severe gastrointestinal narrowing. Use with caution in patients with hypertension and other cardiovascular conditions, psychosis, bipolar disorder, and history of seizures, EEG abnormalities. Stimulants may cause new psychotic or manic symptoms. Discontinuation of treatment may be appropriate. Aggressive behavior or hostility should be monitored in patients beginning ADHD treatment. 
Methylphenidate may produce difficulties with visual accommodation and blurring of vision. Hematologic monitoring is advised during prolonged therapy. Growth should be monitored during treatment with stimulants, and patients who are not growing or gaining height or weight as expected may need to have their treatment interrupted. The most common adverse reaction, greater than 5%, reported in children and adolescents was abdominal pain upper. The most common adverse reactions, greater than 10%, reported in adults were dry mouth, nausea, decreased appetite, headache, and insomnia. Concerta. Start here. Get there.